Talk RL. Talk RL podcast is all reinforcement learning all the time, featuring brilliant guests, both research and applied. Join the conversation on Twitter at Talk RL Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Today, I'm very glad to welcome Julian Togelius. Julian's an associate professor of computer science and engineering at NYU. And he's co-founder and research director at Model AI. Welcome, Julian. Hey, thank you, Robin. Um, I'm glad to be here. I encountered your work. Um, actually, I encountered you on Twitter a while ago, but more recently, uh, I saw you wrote a very interesting paper aimed at AI researchers on ways to cope with the recent frantic pace in AI. Uh, the paper was called "Choose Your Weapon: Survival Strategies for Depressed AI Academics," and that's with yourself as first author. Uh, can you? Tell us a little bit more about this paper and uh, what are the, first of all, what are the feelings behind this and what led you to, to write a paper like this? Yeah, so basically it started with some uh, discussions between me and my good friend and frequent collaborator and co-founder, Yorgos Yanagakis, um, and we were reflecting over what's happening now with the insane amounts of money being poured into AI research by very large industry players. Um, and how a lot of the progress that we've seen is really sort of the kind of work that is being done could could only be done if you have research budgets that allow you to spend millions of dollars of compute. Um, and what is a poor every guy, every guy to do, basically, someone who's just an academic researcher? And this is kind of ironic because uh, both me and Jorgos, um, we're pretty well off. I'm at this famous university and have a decent sized lab. Um, Jorgos has his whole own research institute and all these European grant money. And uh, we also both co-founded um, an AI startup um, that is trying to productize some of the stuff we've been working on for a long time, that, that being model AI. So, you know, you would look at us and basically say that, uh, no, no, these are not regular guys. These guys have resources. And still, we feel that like there are so many things we'd love to do that we just cannot do because um, we're not Google, Meta, or OpenAI, um, or you know, bankrolled by I don't know Saudi oil princes or something like this. And if you're listening and you're a Saudi oil prince and want to give us millions of dollars, um, hey, uh, I'm listening. Anyway, um, <laughs> so you know, uh, we are. Uh, experiencing this and i know that this is a very very widespread feeling in the community that what can you possibly do um with like normal person normal um uh, academic research lab um, strategies and we started basically just listing what you can do and uh, many people have picked up that the very first strategy we have we have a dozen or so strategies in there is give up um and this is give up not in the sense of like you know um never do research again or um, never uh, sort of, you know, um, leave the field in disgust or something like this. It's more that you can actually be an academic researcher um, and not want to make like huge impact and basically publish a few small papers now and then, especially if you're lucky enough to be in a position with job security. Um, you don't have to change the world. On the other hand, uh, most of us got into this because we wanted to do amazing, great stuff that changed the world. Um, and then the rest of the paper goes on about how can you do this? How can you sort of basically 
have an impact even if you don't have resources. And the observations, of course, that if you go back to even, even like 10 years back, certainly 15 years back, a lot of the research that did make a big impact on the field was done by like, you know, one or two or three people with essentially uh, a desktop computer, like regular thing. Um, uh, there wasn't even infrastructure around and uh, maybe not data sets around that would require or make use of um, this kind of uh, huge compute capacity. So, um, but that is sadly not the situation anymore. Maybe it's not sad. Maybe it's great that now we can actually make big science with AI. Um, but yeah, so then we go, then, then we started listing these things and uh, we wrote it up. Um, we uh, ran it through some of the people in our internal teams um, and um, got some feedback. And then we wrote it up and put it online there and got an enormous response because um, we clearly struck a nerve with thousands of people judging for the responses that feel exactly like this. So that was pretty interesting. I don't know if it's good or bad. <laughs> Was this partly brought on by uh, the advent of these these massive uh, large language models? Um, I mean, definitely this has been a meme in the field in academia for yeah. years in terms of models getting larger and larger. But uh, it seems to me the uh, the scale the hypothesis is kind of won out in a certain sense. Yeah. Is it really about that, or is it is it AI as a whole, deep learning as a whole, and is there an RL angle here? I think it is deep learning as a whole, for sure. Um, uh, and Richard Sutton probably phrased it best in his bitter pill. Basically, we take kind of the bitter pill, that half page of text, um, as a starting point and look at like, okay, the bitter pill is true, like scaling works. Um, so but the bitter lesson is true. Scaling works um, and your clever things um, don't matter much if they don't also scale. Um, otherwise, we'll scale past your clever things. I think it's true for deep learning as a whole. RL is a little bit different because RL isn't dependent on huge data sets as much as it is dependent on huge compute. Or in other words, it's even more dependent on huge compute. One outcome of this is that basically it's inapproachable in a slightly different way than huge unsupervised or um, self-supervised or supervised learning. Because um, you can build an environment and then train a lot in that, but then you have the huge compute re um, resources needed to actually train on it. So it it, it very much applies to RL, but uh, it is we're really talking about all of deep learning as it is right now. So do you see uh, like big compute experiments as kind of almost like a low hanging fruit at this point? If for the people who have those those um, resources and, 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 and everyone else has to look higher up in the tree? That's a good way of putting it. Let me say that I am certainly not alone in having like a long list of like more or less formulated ideas that I was thinking about like for years that I just could not do. And then I see someone else um, basically publishing a paper showing that it works because they put a million dollars of compute into it. Um, and of course it feels in one way unfair like you know yeah i had this idea obviously i was probably not alone with this idea um probably hundreds of people had it um uh and um, um but we couldn't do it because we did not have that amount of research um or that amount of resources so yes to some extent it's low-hanging fruit in the sense that um 
it gets much easier to do research at this scale. Of course, you have other problems. You have um, the problem of actually using this money efficiently in terms of you need to build an organization that um, an organization that basically um, can efficiently use the money and you, can, you need to build a compute infrastructure, which is very hard. I mean, there's a lot of good old fashioned engineering that goes into this, um, not just the machine learning trickery. Um, and one of our points in our paper is that the typical academic um, organization is not set up for this because if you need to spend a million dollar compute well, you probably have a team of 10 people. Um, and not every one of these is a researcher. Um, various people are just like support staff um, and managing people, building data pipelines and so on. Now, in a university environment, you have mostly hire PhD students, sometimes postdocs. Postdocs are only around for like maybe two years. PhD students are maybe around four to five years, um, and three in some countries. And the PhD students need to have their own projects that they can write up their own thesis about so they can graduate. And this whole structure, even if you had a money in academia, this structure makes it really, really hard to do this kind of research. Whereas if you're deep mind, you can have this kind of long-term financing and you can have a diverse team of complementary skills where uh, no one is worried about having to <clears throat> write up basically go up for a proposal and then write up a thesis and graduate and and then disappear from the team. So it's a very different structure. And this is just something intrinsic to how universities work, um, for better or worse. So this is like, it's not just about money. It's also about like the, the organizational aspects of it. So we recently featured Jacob Forrester, uh, a professor at Oxford, and he had said that on, uh, in our interview, he had said that, you know, industry is a place for exploitation of ideas and academia yeah. as a place for exploration. And that it's a natural cycle that something that comes out of academia will then get handed, uh, will, will, will then get carried on by industry um, to exploit. And that if that's happened, I think the implication is if that's happened with some of this uh, large compute AI, then that's a sign for academia to explore other other new things, which I definitely right. you touched on that uh, strategies like that in the paper yeah. in terms of looking somewhere else. Is um, yeah, I, I I've gone around and said similar things a lot, and I want to believe it's true. I think it's probably is true. Quite a few of the strategies we list are about this. How can you do something that is not done by um, the uh, large and rich companies uh, in one way or another and uh, one way is to like look at like new problems problems that people aren't um, exploring so they need to be like problems that maybe people don't think they're important um, so uh, i mean my academic history and yours as well um, who i co-wrote a paper with we started out in video games back when back back when nobody thought it was anything that like a, a serious researcher should do but we just didn't care. We wanted to work in this, so we did. And throughout my career, I had so many people basically approach me and said that, wow, can you really work in this? But when are you gonna do serious research? What, what if this is not real AI, or this is not like, this is not good for anyone. Why are you not working on cars or robotics or something like this? Um, 
and I just told them um, that they <laughs> told them they were just jealous, <laughs> and then I went on and did what I uh, did. What I did, of course, around 2015 or so, um, uh, we saw like this big upshoot of interest with the um, Atari environment and so on, um, and I had this weird feeling of being feeling slightly vindicated and um, bypassed at the same time, I guess. Um, so um, uh, probably even more true for other people in our community of people working in video games. I also worked on things in video games, not that people didn't care about, not just like playing them, but also like generating content for them, um, automatically designing them, modeling players, things like this. Um, and of course, you should take this strategy even further. Look at problems that nobody seems to care about, uh, that are not serious or not sexy or not kosher in one way or another. And it could be different applications, it could be different approaches to the applications, or like it could be something that is um, that nobody wanted, just um, and and just and that's why you work on it essentially. Um, so basically, working on new problems, new applications that are not cool is one thing. Also using methods that shouldn't work. So a lot of the progress, I mean, the most classic example here is that all of deep learning exists because a bunch of people kept working on deep learning, keep, kept working on what, what would become deep learning. So basically, gradient descent training of neural networks, even when the consensus in the machine learning community was very much against it. like. Um, Support vector machines are way better, um, they have way better theoretical basis than um, gradient descent in multilayer perceptrons. Yet, Jan LeCun, Jürgen Schmidhuber, Jeff Hinton, Josh Benjo, and a couple hundred other people um, kept working on this because they believed in it. And in the end, they were right, which, which is great, you know. Um, and you should probably do the same because say that you work at an organization that can run million dollar compute experiments. Um, you probably don't throw a million dollar at anything. You probably only do it if you have a good um, reason to believe that it's going to work. Now, if you are a lonely academic somewhere, um, maybe you should go for things that shouldn't work, things that go against the received wisdom, things that things that are likely to fail, but fail in an interesting way. Um, because you can, uh, and you know, things that when they fail will teach you something and then will give you an even stranger idea for something to try um, and do things that have no basis in theory or that goes against theory, goes against the received wisdom and, and just uh, basically move ahead with it. And then yet another strategy for the exploration is, um, and now we're getting into what some people consider really shaky ground. Um, here is where some people would want to distance themselves from, from me and Yorgos, is that do things that have somewhat bad optics. We're in an era where um, <clears throat> AI research has become maybe politicized, maybe not quite politicized yet, but um, people are getting very ethics nervous. And first of all, I'm not going to say that you should do anything you think is unethical, you definitely should not do anything that goes against your personal ethics. But chances are that if you are a person in the world that cares about AI, 
your particular ethics is not the same as that which infuses um, the boardroom of um, and upper management of um, a very rich company that is located on uh, in New York or San Francisco area, um, which is mostly white people with a Western background, etc. We're seeing this very, very specific idea of what ethics is um, uh, that is kind of uh, this very specific idea that is steering what is what people are doing in AI. So take an example of like what I'm talking about here. Back in 2017, <clears throat> me and two of my PhD students, who was mostly driven by Ahmed Khalifa and Gabriela Paros, we were looking into text generation, like very primitive text generation by today's standards, LSTMs and stuff, and automatic autocomplete systems, basically th things that would write you, help you write uh, mails and SMSs and so on. And the sort of the reason, the way they would not let you say fuck, they would never suggest that for you. And we're like, why you want to do that? I use that in my language all the time. And then we were all very influenced by Chuck Tingle, the um, fascinating author of um how do you best characterize this absurd sci-fi uh political satire gay erotica it has a lot of like dinosaurs having sex with each other and so on um in, in or people having sex with unicorns and so on uh, it's very gay uh and we decided that what if we train text generation methods on his books and his very idiosyncratic language and, ex and explore what would that be um, uh, if, if, if you use it as, to, um, as an autocomplete system. Basically, let's throw away this assumption that you want to write neutral English, whatever that is, and uh, sort of clean English, and you instead want to write whatever it is Chuck Tingle is writing. Uh, and I love that little paper with it. Um, uh, I love it even more because we had various people, including <laughs> including people in PR that basically said, don't release this. And I'm like, fuck you, I'm going to release this. Um, yeah. And uh, this is the kind of thing that um, this is the kind of thing that I think you maybe should be doing if you want to do things that the larger rich companies are not doing. Um, Look at look at what exactly they wouldn't do, and think about why wouldn't they do it? Why wouldn't why would it seem seem to be a completely unreasonable thing to do, and then explore it? That, that example is interesting because it it seems to fit so neatly into internet culture. I mean, that type of right. text is is not not unusual on the internet. And however, these large language models that uh, are you know supposedly compressing the internet, they're also done sanitizing it and uh, removing that internet culture component uh, or a large right. large part of it so that's that's, that's interesting I, I, i'm of multiple minds towards uh, um, attempts at sanitizing and aligning language models it's clearly valuable but it also risks just erasing a lot of stuff so do you feel like the uh this the, the tone with these strategies is one of pessimism is like oh I, I can't believe we have to you know resort to these things or is there an optimistic uh way of looking at this of saying let's let's turn this into some kind of opportunity do you see it that way or is it or is it uh what is the feeling really the feeling is kind of resisting riotous um mischievous um like uh, uh, we're facing an ordinary academic researcher that has been effectively cut out from doing a certain kind of research 
um, needs to basically develop resistance strategies. Um, you need to become someone else that does some other research. Um, and this is, yeah, an, 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 an element of like spite or resistance in it. Um, so it's not quite depressed. It's not quite optimistic either. And then in terms of RL specifically, I, I, I guess there's some other approaches that are more technical approaches to let small labs get that that performance. Like I was thinking things like purely JAX-based RL that can do the right. whole RL loop much faster or using um, using agents like Dreamer version 3 that can uh, be much more sample efficient in terms of of um, of of getting to high performance just dramatically faster than the than the legacy algorithm, so that that might be one other yeah. angle that uh, RL people specifically could take. Yeah, so so I I I hundred percent agree. I think both of what you mentioned here is really exciting. I think vectorization of environments is very cool. Um, I it is something I want to do more with uh, one of our current um, projects. Um, we are currently thinking through how could we vectorize the whole thing um, to enable um, extreme multitasking. Um, and Dreamer is also an interesting thing. There is, of course, the problem that if this works well for us, it works even better if you have a million dollar compute budget and can distribute it not over a certain amount of uh, CPU cores or like um, over like a small number of GPUs, but in, you can sort of distribute it over a vast cluster. So um, it is cool, it is interesting, um, and I think we should do it. But um, I also think that uh, the relative um, advantages of having a very large, um, very large compute budget and a large team doesn't go away. One thing that might be even more interesting is if um, RL models go the way of LLMs. Right now, we open source them and you fine tune them, and you could basically see that you have open source models of uh, acting in certain environment that are just like spread around on web pages and GitHub and BitTorrent and whatnot, and people do their own work in tweaking them and uh, and fine tuning them. That would be a very a good future, I think. I, I'm very bullish on the open source um, open source AI future, and I hope that. Um, uh, the gatekeepers that be um, Sam Altman and whatever um, uh, fail miserably in shutting it down. Uh -huh. Okay, so let's move on to your startup. You have a startup named uh, Model AI. You mentioned that you're co-founder and research director there. Can you tell us about uh, Model AI? What does Model AI do and what do you do there? Sure. Model AI has been an amazing journey that I've learned a lot from and uh, and we have built a lot of stuff that I'm very proud of and that I also hope is going to make us money at some point. But um, basically, it started with a number of us that have been working in AI for games for a while. Um, and uh, me and several of my colleagues and my student and so on. This um, thinking about um, how could we commercialize the work we've been doing in AI for games. We started this company, we got funding. And then we started looking into what would actually work. We worked closely with people in the game industry, um, like, well, with game developers that had specific needs. Um, and we looked into how could we solve this in a way that's repeatable and productizable. And one thing we found out was that a lot of stuff that we wanted to do 
we could do this. We could build level generators. We worked with King on level generators for Candy Crush, for example. We um, uh, we worked with several other companies I can't really talk about on coming up with uh, bots, uh, multiplayer bots for their games and um, opponents and sidekicks and a number of different things. But because each game differs so much from other games, um, we faced a real challenge into making a product that could actually be reusable and resellable to others. And as a startup that is venture funded, that is on a that needs to be on a growth curve, um, you can't really you you're not planning to build a consultancy. You're basically um, growing or or dying. Um, so we needed to find something we could build a, build a good product out of. Um, and what we eventually found after trying a myriad things um, is game testing. We game testing is not the only thing Model AI does, but that is currently our core product, our kind of um, our kind of uh, the, the thing that we hope will make us money in the short to medium term. While we're also working on other things, and the game testing um, that we are doing is for an RN podcast. This might sound a little bit. Um, uh, <laughs> depressive, but basically the game testing we're doing is mostly based on exploration bots. We are exploring various ways that um, we can enhance this exploration bot. Um, and we have some machine learning components in there, but at the core of it is something like the non-reinforcement learning parts of Go Explore. It's not exactly that, but that is um, that is a relatively close um, uh, analog of what we're doing. Um, the good part of this is that this actually works. So you can use this to explore game spaces and find various bugs, um, you know, frame rate drops, falling through the environment, crashes, um, glitches of various kinds. Um, there's a whole bunch of things and it generates a report um, for the game developer and they can prioritize and group their various bugs and go in and fix them. Given how much uh, of a game development budget is actually game testing, this turns out to be really valuable for our customers. Um, we're looking now how to explore this to sort of um, into more intelligent testing strategies, into team player bots and so on. But um, basically, the more intelligent thing you, uh, the thing you try to do is, yeah, in a, for some value of intelligent, um, the more you run into the problem that video games are very different from each other. And and the more you sort of need to tailor your specific solutions to a specific game. Can you talk about what genres of games uh, you're working with? We are currently focusing on games with first person or close to first person perspective in three dimensional environments. Um, within that, um, there's a huge variation, FPSs, person games, um, team-based games, single-player games, and so on. But we are, our main efforts are into the 3D environments with close to first-person use, um, because that's how we set things up. Um, but I can tell you without without breaking any NDAs that we are working with at least one um, famous first-person shooter at the moment, um, and uh, one famous, um, sort of racing game 
do you see a more of a role for RL going forward in the future, or are you seeing that other methods really outperform RL for this this type of task uh, in general? The problem with reinforcement learning and game testing is the same as the problem with reinforcement learning in a billion other contexts, is that it uh, overfits. Uh, it overfits really, really, really badly. Um, this is something we all want to get away from, but generally reinforcement learning, when given a chance, will learn a very brittle strategy that only works for one particular game and one particular level in that game and one particular angle towards that level and one particular color scheme and everything gets very 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 particular it is a huge challenge to you to create reinforcement learning agents that have some degree of generalization and if you want uh if you want a product that can work across multiple games you need some of that generalization uh, otherwise you have to do the retraining every time you want to test something so I do think there's a future here, but we need to get um, further towards something like reinforcement learning foundation models um, that can actually generalize well enough. I don't think we're there yet. I think there is interesting work in towards that, um, but I don't think we're there yet. And this is why our product mostly relies on exploration bots right now. Definitely seems like an exploration-heavy task, which I don't know if it's fair to say, but it's my senses that uh, contemporary RL hasn't really solved the exploration piece so much as the exploitation side. No, uh, and so that makes sense that you're pointing to Go Explorer. You know, we had the um, the author of of Go Explorer on on the show uh, not long ago, Jeff Clune. That makes total sense because in in when testing, you're going to want to explore all the nooks and crannies places you haven't seen before, Deep RL's not that great at that. No. I just want to say that I'm a big fan of Jeff's work. Um, we know each other fairly well and go way back. So uh, another piece of work from him that um, that uh, we, we that influenced a lot of our thinking is what's called video pre-training, where he pre-trained um, uh, Minecraft agents on large amounts of video data by also learning an inverse uh, dynamics model that basically learns um, actions or predicts actions from um, from video transitions. And I think this kind of thing, this is going some way towards the foundation model RL that we're talking about. Um, and I think it's a very interesting direction to go. Unfortunately, one that requires quite massive compute. Yeah, especially to create that first pre-trained model just the, the, the yeah. i guess the analogy to gpt here in, in in terms of video and then i guess the idea is the rest of us can uh, cheaply fine tune just the way the rest of us can cheaply fine tune uh, uh, llama or something. we might exactly we might very well have this thing where um where basically we have like a generic find, um, or generic model for playing lots and lots of 3d games and you can fine tune it to your particular games this is something we at model would love to be able to do um uh, we're not there yet. So I noticed you have a number of papers on procedural content generation and some of them involving RL. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this uh, this line of work? Yeah, so I've been working in procedural content generation for a long time. Um, I started back in 2006 or so. We're trying to sort of basically um, uh, turn the problem of learning to play games around. And instead of learning to play games, how could you learn to generate games? And for a long time, I was mostly working with evolutionary computation and did some really interesting stuff there, I think. Um, 
And we also explored constraint, satisfaction algorithms, grammars, a lot of things. Um, and we recently started working with RL here. And RL is interesting because evolutionary computation, when it comes to evolving game levels, it's quite computationally expensive. Now, reinforcement learning is even more computationally expensive, but you kind of front-loading the computation. First, you're spending all this, uh, all this amount of time on training a level generator, and then you have a level generator that can generate levels really, really fast. So you're sort of changing when and where you are doing the computational effort. <clears throat> and we were, first I was a little bit skeptical that it would actually work, but it turned out to, do, to, to work actually. So the thing is, instead of looking at an agent that plays a game, you're thinking an agent that generates a game level or maybe generates other aspects of the game. And you basically give it rewards just the same so in our main formulation, what currently works best, we're giving it dense rewards, um, the agents, for, um, for uh, generating good levels. So it gets, whenever it improves the level in terms of some metrics, uh, it, uh, we reward it, and when it makes it worse, we, we punish it, essentially. Um, and the problem here is accurately yet rapidly calculating level quality, which is a very, very hard problem. Um, but for many kinds of levels or for some kinds of problems, um, so some kind of aspects of level quality, you can actually do this. Um, and what you would do here is looking at uh, um, connectedness between different parts of the level, path lengths, existence of various things in the level, like good level must have a spawn point, it must have a path to the exit, it must have treasures, it must have monsters, and then Maybe the treasures needs to be behind the monsters, etc. Um, and then you train an agent to do this, and you can go on and create things. You can also give the agents conditional input so that then you train an agent that can create levels of different types, like for example, easy and hard levels, or um, levels with the presence or absence of particular kind of enemies, um, levels where the exit is close to the entrance or not, and so on. And this works pretty well. Even more interestingly, because it's really hard with a reward to catch every aspect of level quality. Um, so even more interestingly, you can combine agents later on. You can basically create a level that, um, or create an train an agent that generates one kind of level. And then you train another agent that generates continuous working on the level, but with another set of, uh, with another set of goals and so on. Um, now, do these sort of reward, um, these evaluation functions capture accurately how good the level really is for humans? No, it doesn't. Um, but it certainly does, um, it does get, get us a part of the way there. Um, and maybe this is a way that you can, you can then build on as a human, sort of keep editing this. Are, are the metrics that are used for level design, are they kind of hand designed or do you see some, some way around that? Uh, like, I guess in, in large language models, there's this notion of a, um, of a reward model that tries to capture right. people's preferences. And I, right. and I would imagine that's quite challenging in a game, game environment. But if, if you had that, maybe then that could drive your, your, your level designer. Yeah, it's funny that you mention it because we're working on that right now. Um, basically the equivalent of RLHF for 
level design. Oh, cool. It's tricky. Um, it's, 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 it is actually quite hard. Another thing you can do is learn from examples of good levels. So we have this thing called um, the path of destruction, which basically takes good levels, destroys them in a myriad of different ways, and learns from the paths, um, like learns from the trajectories from 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 destroyed levels to good levels. So it's a little bit RL-like. It's also a little bit like a diffusion model, um, but um, in a sequential and discrete way. So it's um, also quite unlike a diffusion model. And this also works pretty well. We've been able to do this for game levels, for Lego uh, structures, and so on. Um, one interesting thing here that you can do is that for people who don't care about coming up with levels that are good for humans or interesting Lego structures, um, I mean, most people actually do care. There is the other, there's the kind of meta use of this in generating new levels so that they would be good for training new bots that play the levels, um, basically. And this goes back to what we talked about before, um, being able to um, generalizing reinforcement learning. So some of the work we did, we used these um, uh, level generators to generate an infinite supply of levels um, that gradually get harder so that you can um, so that you can train better game playing agents. So it's basically, and then of course you can use proceed, um, reinforcement learning for this. So you can basically train level generating agents that generate levels that help you train game playing agents. And, <laughs> and you could probably go further with with this virtuous loop, I think. You know, I would say that sounds so meta, but now with uh, Facebook's new name, I, I don't even like using that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. True. They took it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's cool. I, I, there's a lot of interesting stuff to work in on there. Some people call it open-ended learning, which is a good, good, good term for it, I guess. But, um, you can basically use reinforcement learning in every stage of this, which is not saying that reinforcement learning is necessarily the best way of doing this. I'm still, my heart still beats for evolutionary algorithms. And I think there's a lot of good um, ways of combining, combining these methods, but, but, but I'm definitely very much into this sort of, you know, um, level generators and um, uh, level generators and game playing or, acting in an environment agents um, and how they combine with each other. So besides your own work, uh, are there other hap other things happening in RL lately that, that you find uh, interesting? Depends on what you mean by RL, really. But yes, I think Dreamer is really interesting. I think there is um, Sergey Levine's work on actually getting offline queue learning to um, really work well. It's um, kind of boring interesting <laughs> because it's clearly clearly very, very useful. Um, the kind of things he does or his team does to make it work well are very simple in themselves um, uh, and uh, kind of uh, anticlimactic, but um, the performance they get out of offline queue learning is very cool. And this is the kind of things that we probably need to build these reinforcement learning foundation models in the future. That otherwise, I look a lot into what's happening in the field that might be called open-ended learning. Um, and uh, I am very close to and following what's happening in the quality diversity algorithms um, and uh, interesting in the use of, of quality diversity for reinforcement learning, for example. 
so that's that's where I go look um, mostly. Awesome, Julian Tagelius. Thank you so much for sharing your insight with the Talk RL audience today. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Robin. It has been a pleasure being here. Thank you.